Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, 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 and welcome again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I am Shannon Riley. Thank you to my darling daughter, Bibi, for introducing me. I'm very excited to be coming to you again this Sunday to talk about the works of William Shakespeare. And I'm very excited because this happens to be my 50th podcast. I just can't believe it. 50. It's amazing. So, because this is such a monumental podcast for me, I'm going to be sharing with you at the end of the podcast some of my ideas for the future of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday and what it might look like. So I'll do that at the very end. So stick around. I'd, I'd love for you to hear what I have in mind. But if you'd like to reach me, I'd love to talk to you. You can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from anybody out there who's listening to the show and has any thoughts about our program. Today, we are talking about one of Shakespeare's last plays. We are up to the year 1611, and we're talking about a play called The Winter's Tale. It's hard to classify it. it. It plunges into deep, dark territory in the first three acts and then climbs out on the other side in a very bright and happy story at the end. And because of it, it can't be classified truly as anything other than a romance. And that's that's what it's listed as. A lot of his later plays were romances because they don't really fit into comedy. They don't really fit into tragedy. And to be honest, it's much more about where Shakespeare, I think, was mentally at this time of his writing. He was a man who knew he was going to quit writing soon. He could see the end coming. Now, we don't know why we he quit writing. It, some have suggested that he made enough money that he just went home. Uh, that's possible. He certainly was a very successful playwright and did make a lot of money. But it also could be that he could smell the end was coming because he himself was growing ill. We don't know what killed Shakespeare, but we do know that he died shortly after returning to Stratford-upon-Avon for his retirement. Some people say it was a night of carousing with friends and he developed pneumonia and that's what killed him. Possibly. Some have suggested that he was sick when he left London and it was very possible that he was dying from something that we may not even know about. This play, The Winter's Tale, is probably one of those plays that is forgotten about, kind of shifted off to the side, because it's not one of those big names of Shakespeare's. Yet there's an awful lot of wonderful here. And one of the things I love about the play is its title, The Winter's Tale. You see, in Shakespeare's time, there were plays that were simply called The Wives' Tale or The Old Tale. It was considered to be idle, ridiculous, silly, 
and a happy ending was promised at the end. When people saw a tale in the title, they knew that it was going to be a story that ended happily but wasn't meant to be taken too seriously. And that's certainly the case with this play. He follows a story that was written actually by a playwright by the name of Robert Greene. And Robert Greene wrote this play in 1588. It was called Pandesto, a pastoral romance. It's very interesting in that he even picked Robert Greene's play. You see, Robert Greene is known as a playwright, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, who died in 1592. So he wouldn't have lived to have seen Shakespeare reenact his play or recreate his play. But it's an interesting playwright for Shakespeare to pick up. Robert Greene did not like Shakespeare. They worked together early in their career. If you remember from a podcast I did a long time ago when I was talking about Titus Andronicus, possibly Shakespeare's first play, was probably originally written by Robert Greene and was an unfinished play that he presented to Shakespeare and Shakespeare finished it. Robert Greene later goes on to just really lambaste Shakespeare. He doesn't like him. He uh, considers him a hack writer. This could have been a lot of jealousy on Robert Greene's part, considering that Titus Andronicus went on to be the most successful play in Shakespeare's career, even though it was his first one. It was huge. It was the most successful play during his lifetime, and Robert Greene had to see that. On top of that, Robert Greene died penniless. He died very young. He was only in his 30s. And it's possible that Shakespeare goes back and picks up on this old play of Robert Greene's, either in a way to say, this is how you should have written it, or in a way to pay homage and make amends with the dead man who he fought with. So, Winter's Tale has a unique background, even just on what it is based on, and the fact that it is such a light, light tale. The other thing that I wanted, and I keep bringing this up when we're talking about Shakespeare during this period of his life, and that is that Shakespeare is writing plays about him, his life. I really believe the switch to absentee fathers and absentee daughters and marriages that are breaking up, these are all related to what's going on in Shakespeare's life. He's returning to Stratford-on-Avon. He doesn't know what he's going to find there, except he knows he has two daughters who he really does not know. He did not spend that much time with him. And he has a wife that, again, he hasn't spent most of his married life away from her. So there's a very strong idea that maybe Shakespeare's returning to a world that he himself did not know what to find. So his plays, all these latter romances, in some way deal with a dad being separated from his daughter. Sometimes not because of what they did, but in this case, it definitely is because of what that father did. So before I get too far afield, let's take a look at some of the quotes of Winter's Tale. And to do that, I'm going to bring in my boy who always likes to say... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. Now, perhaps the most famous quote of all from Winter's Tale is actually not a quote at all, but a stage direction in Act 3, Scene 3. Probably the most famous stage direction of any play anywhere. That stage direction was Exit pursued by bear. This is something that is talked about over and over again. It's such a funny image, an actor running off stage being pursued by a bear. And the question is, did they really get a bear? There could have been bears. They brought in bears and a bear bedding, bear pits that would be used for entertainment. There would have been bears. Or did they use a bear skin? Or was there no bear at all? It's, it's just such a funny stage direction, exit pursued by bear. The other thing, and this is a little naughty on a Sunday, so I'm sorry about that. 
But this possibly was the very first place where the word dildo appears in print. And it does. We don't believe that Shakespeare invented that word, but it's probably the first time it was ever put in print. And yes, it means exactly what you think it means. Now, I'm not certain if it was the first time it was in print because Ben Jonson also uses the word. And we're not quite certain whose play got published first since we don't really know when they were done and when they were written. So you can credit, credit either Ben Jonson or Shakespeare with the introduction of that word being put down to paper for the first time. I'm not going to read that quote. It's kind of a, a long quote anyway, but it's about one of the one of the servants is talking about another servant who has come to town with fancy things for the ladies, and he includes that word. So, in any case, there are some other really fun quotes. For instance, Autolycus in Act 4, Scene 4 has the quote, Ha ha, what a fool honesty is. I kind of like that quote. He also goes on to say in that same scene, Though I am not naturally honest, I am sometimes by chance. <laughs> and Paulina has this phrase, the silence off of pure innocence persuades when speaking fails. Act 2, Scene 2. In other words, shut up. This is really a fun play, and um, more people should actually read this play. More theaters should do this play. It's quite fascinating. So let's go through our synopsis, and it's a pretty simple synopsis. And, and on the other end, we'll talk about the play itself and the future of Shannon Shakespeare's Shundays. All right, it's, first of all, it starts out with two friends. They are both kings of their different cities. There is the king of Sicily, who is Leontes, and his best friend, childhood friend, Polixenes, who is king of Bohemia. Now, Polixenes has been visiting Leontes. As a matter of fact, it's been a nine-month trip. He's been spending nine months in Sicily with his lifelong friend. And Leontes, Leontes does not want him to leave. But Polixenes says, I got to get back to my own world. Sorry, I got to go. So Leontes goes to his pregnant wife, Hermione, and says, please persuade my friend to stay just a little bit longer. And she does. She talks to him and immediately he agrees to stay. Well, this shocks Leontes. As a matter of fact, it turns him cold on his wife and his friend. And he begins to believe that she has been unfaithful to him. His obsession of this unfaithfulness grows and grows until he asks his cupbearer, Camellio, to poison Polixenes. Well, rather than doing that, Camellio warns Polixenes, and together the two of them leave the country, leaving Hermione and her son, Mamalius, to face the king's wrath. Polixenes takes his favorite servant and runs all the way back to Bohemia. Now, Leontes is still upset about his wife and certain that she has been unfaithful and that perhaps even the child growing inside of her is not his. Leontes imprisons Hermione. He has no evidence that she's done anything, but he has strong suspicion. Now, while she's imprisoned, she gives birth to a baby girl, and Leontes orders two messengers to travel to the Oracle of Delphi and ask if his delusions are correct. The Oracle will tell him. Paulina, Hermione's best friend, takes the infant child, this baby that was just born, and tries to persuade Leontes by looking at the baby that this is his child and that Hermione has not offended him. This doesn't work. Instead, it only makes him angrier. He threatens Paulina and he threatens the child. And he tells Paulina's husband to take that baby and put it in exile, leave it somewhere in the forest. And off he goes with the child. Meanwhile, in Act 3, weak from being giving birth, Hermione is brought to trial where her innocence is proven by a messenger from the Oracle. 
News comes that Mamilius, the son of Hermione and Leonides, has died from the distress of his mother being arrested. Hermione collapses and is taken away, and Paulina soon returns and says, Bad news, Hermione has now died as well. Leontes faces the reality and the remorse of his action. He has killed his son, his wife, and he has banished his infant daughter somewhere off in the woods. Now Antigonus, who is Paulina's husband, who has taken the baby, has left the baby on a beach in Bohemia. And I'm going to come back to this beach in Bohemia because there's a problem with that idea. Well, he does this, but before he can tell anybody where he's left the baby, he is killed by a bear. Exit pursued by bear. A shepherd and his son soon find the baby, and they take the baby home, and they raise the baby. Now, in Act 4, it's 16 years later. That's how episodic this play is. It goes uh, 16 years later. Leontes is still in mourning for the loss of his wife and his children. But in Bohemia, Camillo, Leontes' old cupbearer, asks Polixenes if he can return home. And Polixenes says, no, I don't think that's a good idea. But he does mention his son Florizel has met and fallen in love with a shepherd's daughter named Perdita. And he's really worried about this relationship because he's, if he continues on this, he'll marry beneath his birth. And he's worried about the social station that the prince will find him in. Polixenes is not happy. Polixenes and Camillo, in disguise, attend a feast where the dancers entertain them. When they're there, they see firsthand Florizel and Bertita are betrothed. Polixenes reveals himself. He denounces Florizel and threatens the shepherd and his son for allowing Perdita to befriend that prince. Now in Act 5, Camillo, still anxious to return to his homeland, helps Florenzo and Perdita escape, and they travel to Sicily. There they are followed by the shepherd, who is in turn followed by Polixenes, all the way to Leonardo's court. Florizens introduces himself and his beloved as ambassadors on behalf of his father. Leonatis, still in mourning over his actions, welcomes the son of his former friend and his new wife. Polixenes and Camillo arrive afterwards and discover that Florizel and his new wife Perdita are safely contained within the castle of Leontes, who refuses to return them to Polixenes. Suddenly, Leonatis discovers that Perdita is not just any shepherd's daughter. She is his long-lost banished daughter. When Perdita is now a suitable companion, Florizel, everyone is reunited. Leonatis and Polixenes mend their past, and everybody is happy. Paulina even reveals that she has a newly completed statue of Hermione, and they should all come and see this beautiful statue. Everyone, especially Leontes, remarks about how beautiful and realistic that statue looks. And upon Paulina's direction, music sounds, and the statue comes to life. It is not a statue. It turns out it is indeed Hermione. Everybody is reunited. Leonatis has his queen, and they are restored to each other. Paulina is given to Camillo to become her new husband, since her husband was eaten by a bear, and everybody lives happily ever after. All right, that's the story of Winter's Tale. i got a lot to talk about on the other side, so we'll see you in just a few minutes. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Seven eight five Magazine. 
Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I'm Shannon Riley. Once again, coming to you to talk about works of William Shakespeare every Sunday on the 8th. It's my pleasure to do this and I'm really excited to talk about A Winter's Tale today. This is really a remarkable play to me and it's it's probably so remarkable because I think this is such an insight into the mind of William Shakespeare at this time. Here is a man who is nearing the end of his writing life. As a matter of fact, the very title we're going to talk about next week was his meant to be his swan song called The Tempest, my favorite play. But as I stated early on in the first half of the show, he, he goes back to a very, well, a play from his infancy as a uh, playwright written by an old rival, Robert Greene. And he adapts this play a great deal. In the original story, the king dies. The queen dies. They pay for their crimes with death. Shakespeare provides a happy ending here. He does this for a couple of reasons, I think. First of all, Shakespeare wants a happy ending. He wants to feel good about where he's going. He is hoping his return to Stratford-upon-Avon will find himself in a loving family. Now, I've said before, and I still do believe this, that There probably wasn't a lot of love between Shakespeare and his wife. They were separated too much. They didn't really know each other, but they existed together. But it was these daughters. And you see this populated in all of the later plays, this father-daughter question. You know, prior to the death of his son and prior to the death of his father, most of Shakespeare's plays was undeniably male-centered. His plays start to become more and more female-centered the older he gets and the closer he gets to retirement. And you see that here in these pastoral comedies, these romances. Pericles, which I talked about a few weeks ago, was very much in the same vein of a father needed to be redeemed by his daughter. And here you have the same thing. Leonides needs to be redeemed by his daughter Perdita. There are some scholars, and I'm not a scholar, I don't claim to be a scholar, but there are some scholars that say that there really was a deeper yet meaning that he was trying to get across to the English people. And that was to somehow give peace of mind about Anne Boleyn. That Anne Boleyn was a fallen queen. She was beheaded by Henry VIII yet on the charge, false charges of adultery. But... Many people believe that she was innocent. And here's a story about a woman, Hermione, who is being accused of that very thing and dies, but comes back to life. Was he making a statement about Henry? He does go back and write one more history, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, called Henry VIII. And he's not kind to his former king. So there could be a message in there for the people of London. But I really think this was much more personal. This was for him. He was writing about his own life and what he thought he might find when he returned home. Now, the play was never published in Shakespeare's lifetime. It was published in the first folio in 1623, but it certainly was performed. There are several mentions of where it was performed. and, And then there's a sense of magic. Shakespeare uses a lot of magic in his later plays. So there's a question of whether or not Paulina, who has this statue, they say, of Hermione, 
really brings a statue back to life through magic and chance? Or is it possible that he, she was simply hiding Hermione the whole time? She dies off stage, and Pauline is the one who comes back and reports her death. It's really up to the director. There is some use of very inventive language by Paulina when she is commanding the statue to move and with the music. So you could treat it as an enchantment, or you simply could say she was a very good friend who hid the queen, knowing that someday she would be proven to be innocent. If so, she hides her for a long time. 16 years. A long time to keep somebody <laughs> in hidden in your home. Now, I said I'd come back to this whole question about Bohemia and leaving the baby on this coastline of Bohemia. This direction in the play seems to suggest that Shakespeare was not well educated. People have pointed at it and said, Bohemia is a landlocked country. How could you leave a baby on a coast of a landlocked country? Well, that's true. It was a landlocked country. But also, during various times of Bohemian's existence, it had territories beyond its borders that it controlled. And one of those did indeed reach the sea. So it's very possible that Shakespeare could have been referring to that. It's also very possible he just messed up. <laughs> and he, he forgot that there is no seacoast off Bohemia. Sending a message to the Oracle to find out if, if indeed Hermione was unfaithful. Well, he, he sends it off to an island. Well, the, the oracle wasn't on an island. However, this mistake was in the original text as well. So it's very possible that Shakespeare just kept it as it was remembered, as it was put in the original text. So I don't count that as a mistake on Shakespeare's part either. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was the bear. I love the idea of the bear. But what did they use? They had London bear pits where they had bears that were brought in they did horrible things with bears. They, they would uh, sit dogs on them and they would have bear biting rings. So there could have been a bear, but I doubt they would have let a real bear loose inside a crowded theater. So it was probably an actor in a bear costume. And what's really unique is the Lord Admiral's men, which was not Shakespeare's acting company, a different acting company, they had a list of properties that were once published and among their possessions was a bear skin. So it's very possible that bearskins were indeed used in the play. I would have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to see just you know, some Jacobean actor throwing a bearskin on him and crawling across the stage after another actor? I think it's kind of funny. And of course, there is the mention of the dildo. And the dildo is vulgar. It's presumed it's, it's meant to be vulgar. The character who is talking about this particular thing is unaware of what it's really used for. And in his language, you find out that he is innocent in its apparatus and what it is used for. And it's funny because he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's meant to be funny. Not also that word appeared in The Alchemist by Ben Jonson, which came out in 1610. Though so if this was in 1611, Ben Jonson may have been the first one to use that term. Also, Ben Jonson and Shakespeare are very common for trading back and forth and stealing things from each other. It was kind of a professional game they would play with each other. So it's very possible that Ben Jonson included this in his work, and Shakespeare decided, well, I'll include it as well. Anyway, it's mentioned and not seen, so it's probably not a big deal. All right, so I want to encourage you to please check out The Winter's Tale. It's really a wonderful play, and it has a very sweet, very happy ending but you gotta be prepared for the first three acts being incredibly dark because they get dark, dark, and darker. So check out The Winter's Tale.
All right. So I wanted to talk for a moment before we say goodbye about this 50th podcast and Shannon Shakespeare Sundays. There's no doubt I've enjoyed doing these a lot. I've enjoyed going back and just looking at these plays again, some of which I haven't looked at in 20, maybe 30 years. Although that's been very enjoyable for me, I've really wondered, well, is that really as enjoyable to everybody else? You know, I'm actually known for being kind of a funny guy, and yet I go back and I listen to my podcasts, and they're a little dry. So... I have decided that on October 3rd, which is going to be the one-year anniversary of Shannon Shakespeare Sundays, and it's also going to be the day where we wrap up going through all of Shakespeare's plays. It happened to work out that it's going to end exactly one year from when I started this whole journey. That's when Shannon Shakespeare Sundays will adapt and become Shannon's showbiz Sundays. What I'm going to do is still talk about Shakespeare from time to time. I love Shakespeare, and I can't help it. As a matter of fact, I may do a couple of more Shannon Shakespeare Sundays after October 4th so that I can pick up on his narrative poems, including, of course, the sonnets. And I've also wanted to talk about the Apocryphals. Those are plays that were at one time attributed to William Shakespeare, but obviously were not the works of William Shakespeare. And it's kind of fun to talk about those. Also, is it possible that the great play Cardinio has been found and it's been there all along? So I'm going to cover those topics and then I'm going to transition to Shannon's showbiz Sunday. I've lived and worked in Topeka in the arts organizations for over 30 years. But there's some amazing people here in Topeka that I want all of you to meet and I want to catch their stories. So... I'm going to be playing games with him, doing interviews one-on-one, and transitioning from Shannon Shakespeare Sundays to Shannon Showbiz Sundays. I hope you come along for the ride, and I hope you enjoy everything that we're going to do as we change this up a little bit. I also want to take just a moment to say thank you to my beautiful bride, who has made a humongous job easy by moving all of my shows back over to my website. She's updated my website. I've got nearly every one of Shannon Shakespeare Sundays there. So if you want to go back and catch any of the past ones, you can find them. So thank you, babe. I really appreciate that. I also want to say congratulations to the Lady Shakes Company, who did their Shakespeare shorts this last weekend. Uh, I hope you got a chance to see it if you're in the Topeka area. Some great Shakespearean performances. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. And again, we'll see you next week. Until then, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.